In the, the Gospel of Matthew, immediately after the story of the birth of Christ, we hear about the wise men coming uh, from the east to, to visit Jesus, uh, after which um, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Egypt because uh, Herod is sending soldiers to Bethlehem uh, to uh, put the, the little boys of Bethlehem to death. Uh, chapter 2 of the Gospel of Matthew ends with uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus uh, then traveling to Nazareth where Jesus will grow up. And then the Gospel of Matthew uh, jumps ahead almost 30 years, um, and it turns its attention to John the Baptist, John the Baptist uh, with whom we began this series a couple of uh, weeks ago when we were uh, looking at his words, uh, he must become greater, Jesus, he must become greater, I, John the Baptist, must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says that uh, John appeared in the Judean wilderness. Uh, he was baptizing people, and this was uh, in order to fulfill the prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, which is the title, of course, of this message series. It's in Matthew chapter 3 that John the Baptist makes a really important announcement. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, in the past, every time I've read those words, I've imagined that they were meant to communicate a fairly frightening picture of the last judgment. Uh, and, and they may well be. I think it's the phrase, with unquenchable fire, that, that's left me with that impression. But this week, as I share with you what amounts to my last kind of regular message here at Stonebridge, I, next week we're going to have our... Um, special service of lessons and carols and celebrating communion together, uh, and then we're on to Christmas Eve. So as I share with you what amounts to my last regular message here, um, I'm actually taking something quite different away from the words of John the Baptist. I, I've actually come to see them uh, not just as, as words of judgment, but also as words of grace. They remind me of a proverb about friendship that, that I remember. And some of you may know this as well. A friend is one to whom one may pour out all the contents of one's heart, chaff and grain alike, knowing that the gentlest of hands will keep what's worth keeping and with a breath of kindness blow the rest away. I love that. You know, as, as we look back on our almost 30 years together, what is it, do you suppose, that God will count as the wheat that's worth keeping? The stuff that will last. That which has been important. So we don't have to worry about the chaff. 
You know, as, I, as I've thought about that question, it's taken me back to today's text where the Apostle Paul offers an answer to every single one of us as believers about what's most important in life and what will really remain when all is said and done and the story has all been told. He says, and now these three remain. These three last. These three things are forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Put into context, he's, he's been you know, writing to the Corinthians who have gotten all caught up in you know, these kind of spectacular spiritual gifts. And you know how easy it is to get caught up in the excitement of, you know, of stuff that, that's happening around us. But, but Paul, looking at that context of the early Corinthian church, you know, that was into prophecy and into speaking in tongues and into, you know, kind of uh, almost this uh, hidden secret knowledge. He says prophecies will cease. Tongues will be stilled. This kind of secret knowledge will pass away. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, he says, we shall see face to face. Now, now I know in part, and that's true for any of us, we only get a part of the truth, that which, which God has revealed to us so that we can understand here and now. Paul says, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But faith, hope, and love, these three will last. These three will remain, will endure will abide. In today's text, uh, or in today's message rather, uh, one of the things I want to do is just talk a little bit about what are faith, hope, and love, and why is it that the Apostle Paul identifies those things as the most important, as the one, those things that will last. They're the wheat, and all the rest is, is chaff. Uh, you know, as I, I think about faith, hope, and love, one of the things I realize is that my thinking about all three of them has actually changed over time. And, and I, I would think that it's supposed to change. I hope your thinking about stuff has changed over time as you, you've had more experience and as you have learned more and more and more about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the unity of the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to change. We are supposed to grow. This is what Paul's getting at when he says, when I was a child, of course I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. You know, I, I would hope that, you know, as a, a young person, if you had the opportunity to, you know, go to Sunday school or whatever, that you learned a lot of stuff there. But I do hope also that the faith that you have now, the hope that you have now, the love that you have now isn't the same faith, hope, and love you had when you were six because we're meant to grow. See, I think most of us start out with kind of some funny ideas about faith. I mean, when we look back on it. 
there are, are a lot of people that, uh, and they're still stuck here in some ways, people confuse faith with belief in God. And certainly belief in God is a part of faith. But maybe we've overlooked that passage that says even the, belief, the, the demons believe that, that there is a God, and they shudder. That's not just belief. Some of us confuse faith with blind faith, that you know people just believe stuff because they're told to believe or, or whatever. It's sort of belief without understanding or perception or discrimination, belief without evidence. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about faith. Others of us imagine, and, and you know, a lot of critics of the Christian faith will, will say this, they imagine that faith stands in opposition to reason, that you have to make a choice between being a reasonable person and being a Christian. And I think that's ridiculous. And it forgets how the New Testament relies, as uh, Luke writes about in the book of Acts, it relies on many convincing proofs to make its case for Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us to know what faith really is because as the author of Hebrews tells us, without faith it is impossible to please God. This is a non-negotiable. We can't please God without faith. So what is this faith? apart from which we can't please God if it's not blind faith, if it's not just belief in God. What is this faith that will endure, that will last and will abide when all of life's chaff is blown or burned away? My definition for faith is this, and I I hope that you have you know, learn this in our time together. Faith is truly trusting God. Not just believing God, trusting God. And, and this is where, you know, in the, the opening chapters of the book of, of Exodus, where our first ancestors, you know, Adam and, and Eve, this is where they make their mistake. Of course they know that God exists, but they chose not to trust him. They chose not to trust his word. They listen to other voices. They listen to their, their own voices, thinking, thinking, imagining that they knew more about what brings happiness and joy than God, the God who created them, did. See, the gift of faith, our truly trusting God, that lasts, that endures, that will last into heaven. God wants us to trust him. God wants us to trust him and to learn by trusting him that he's trustworthy. Uh, Faith isn't just believing that God exists. That's necessary. It's not sufficient. It's needful, but it's not enough. Faith is truly trusting God, trusting God's word. Trusting God's promises, trusting God's goodness, trusting God's grace, trusting God's character, truly trusting God. 
And one of the things, one of my hopes, one of my prayers is that we have learned to trust God more together. Because faith is one of the three gifts of God that will last, that will remain, that will abide. And without faith, without trusting God, it is impossible to please him. The awesome thing is that that the benefit and the blessing that comes when we truly trust God. This is so cool. It's not based on the depth or intensity of our faith. Because you know what? Sometimes we're there and sometimes we're not. And sometimes, you know, our doubts overwhelm us and, and stuff. It isn't based on the depth or intensity of our faith as if you know, we could tell ourselves, well, the reason that, you know, I'm not finding blessing in my life is because I'm not trying hard enough. I don't have enough faith as, as if it's all about me. It isn't based on the depth or intensity of our faith. It's based on the incomparable character of God. God is trustworthy. The, one of the analogies I've always liked, you, you know, you can have a whole lot of faith you can have a confident belief in what turns out to be thin ice. No matter how strong your faith is when you walk out on that lake, no matter how much you believe if the ice is thin, it will not hold you up. On the other hand, you might not have a whole lot of faith in what turns out to be thick ice. But however small your faith may be, if the ice is thick, if it's solid, if there is you know, something substantive there, you can have just a little bit of faith and that, will, that thick ice will hold you up because it is not about the strength of your faith, it is about the object of your faith that determines the outcome. The object of our faith, the subject of our faith, is God who is trustworthy. This is why I think Jesus says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, just a little, just enough to take that first step to trust God, as you take those baby steps trusting God, one of the things you discover is God's trustworthy. And it gives you the confidence then to take more and more steps. And with each step you take, your faith grows more and more and more. We may start out hesitant to trust our lives to God. There may be somebody, you know, here with us this morning who's, you know, trying to make a decision about, you know, should I trust God in this area of my life or not? Should I become a follower of Christ? We, we start out hesitant. But the thing is, the more we trust God, the more we learn that God is good. That his word is true. That he keeps his promises. That he is trustworthy. That God's will for our lives really is to bless us. And to bless everyone who trusts in him. Faith is truly trusting God and finding our lives transformed by that trusting. And that's one of the things that will last forever. 
I think most of us start out with kind of funny ideas about hope as well. That what, what is, is hope? You know, a lot of us confuse hope with wishful thinking. And, you know, and people do these throwaway lines all the time. It's like, well, hopefully the Cubbies are going to win this year, you know, whatever. We confuse hope with wishful thinking. We confuse hope with optimism. Uh, We confuse hope with sort of vague expectation without evidence that things are just going to turn out all right in the end. The problem is when we think about hope that way, we're going to be disappointed. That's basing our lives on pretty thin ice. The problem is living as we do as fallen people in a fallen world. Things don't always work out the way we wish or the way we want them to. Like the old book title, you know, bad things happen to good people. Terrible things happen. And and here again, we see in Scripture that sense of existential honesty that I like to refer to as biblical realism. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It just looks at life as it is. And it doesn't make it better than it is. It doesn't make it worse than it is. It doesn't paper over or try to prettify life's problems. But it just looks life in the face and it soberly assesses and soberly addresses the problems that come into every life, believer, non-believer alike. Uh, back in, on October 27, 1975, Bruce Springsteen, didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> Bruce uh, Springsteen made history by becoming the very first rock star to land on the cover of both Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine in the same week. Never had happened before. I remember uh, the day I saw the Time Magazine. I was riding in a, a bus when I was in in seminary and just, you know, reading about. Uh, The articles, by the way, uh, were both written in response to the breakthrough success of Born to Run, which had been released about two months before. Um, In an interview on BBC Radio that that I actually heard rebroadcast not long ago, Springsteen was asked, what makes a great rock song? And his answer was really interesting. What makes a great rock song? His answer didn't have, have to do with the, uh, the musical aspects of the song so much as the content. He said that every great rock song is about longing. Think about that for a second. Every great rock song is about longing. Examples, longing for a person. Classic rock illustration number one, Layla. You got me on my knees. That's longing. And, and you could, you know, think of, of hundreds of songs that are longing for a person. Longing for a different life, a better life. Classic rock illustration number two, Born to Run. Longing for the past. Classic pop illustration number three. I believe in yesterday. Why'd she have to go? I don't know. She wouldn't say. It's a person that's longing. 
you know, to go back to the past. Longing for whatever, classic rock illustration number four, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But it's not just great rock songs that are about longing. Biblical hope is also about longing, but it's a special kind of longing. It's longing for that which God has planted in our hearts. You know, the Bible says that, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And that's one of the reasons why created in God's image and likeness with eternity planted in our hearts, every single one of us longs for goodness and justice in a broken world. That's why we have this sense when things aren't right that they are not right. And we wish they were better. We pray for a better world. It's because God has planted a certain kind of longing in our hearts that we long for our relationships with those we love to last into eternity because we know from personal experience that this life alone is not enough to contain the love that we have for those whom God's placed in our lives. And this is one of the reasons why when someone we love dies, it feels wrong. And why we grieve. This is why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because God has placed that longing for our relationships with our loved ones to last into eternity. God's placed that longing in our hearts. It's why we long for a better home, for heaven, our true home, a place where our relationships are all ordered the way that they are meant to be, where there is love, a place where there's no sin to, to mar or disturb or disrupt or destroy our relationships, or those whom we love. And as C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for another world. The world as it is is not the world as it was created by God, as it was intended by God. We were made for another world for which our time in this world is preparation. And so we hope and we trust God. The author of Hebrews writes, we have we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You know, the, the ways that most people talk about hope or think about hope, it's not an anchor, it's not firm, it's not secure, it's just kind of this loose, vague thing. 
Biblical hope is substantive. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And what makes the Christian, Christian hope so solid and substantive? Why is it different? What makes it different is this. It's the promises of God whom we trust. That's the basis of our hope. This is why Paul tells us that the gift of hope, our resting in God's promises, abide. They last. They will will remain forever. Even, Even into eternity, we will rest in the promises of God. As Christians, one of the things I think it's really important for us to understand because people can kind of lose their faith over, you know, kind of lose their faith temporarily over this because they think of hope as um, uh, the expectation of a specific outcome. That if I believe in God, this thing will never happen to me. If I believe in God, this thing will happen to me. If I believe enough, I'll get this job. Or I'll overcome this illness or this challenge. We can be really disappointed because sometimes in God's providence, those things that we wish for don't take place. And so as Christians, we don't hope in particular outcomes that we've already predetermined. As Christians, we hope in Jesus Christ, who is the source of our hope. We trust, we hope in Jesus Christ knowing that come what may, no matter what the outcome, all appearances to the contrary notwithstanding, in the words of Jesus to Julian of Norwich, no matter what happens, all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of thing shall be well. We'll have problems. But you know what? Unwanted events have God-ordained limits. Even the death of a loved one takes place within God-ordained limits. They are gone perhaps in this world. They are not gone forever. Every problem has a limited lifespan. God is in control. And if that were not enough, Scripture reminds us that we know that in all things, no matter what, in all things, God works. God is at work for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. So even these you know, tragedies, the painful events that can occur in our lives, God can take those things and use them to equip us to receive something that's absolutely amazing that we would otherwise never be able to know. And that is not wishful thinking. That's not a vague hope. That is the promise of God which is why we can say that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, and trusting in the promises of God, seeing hope as that, 
like faith lasts forever. I think most of us start out with pretty limited ideas about love as well. I sure did. I, I do want to say this, uh, that love in, um, in pretty much all of its uh, God-ordained forms is a blessing. But when Paul writes, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. He's referring to a specific kind of love. He's not writing about romantic love because, you know, romantic love can kind of ebb and flow and come and go with our feelings. He's not referring to family love. He's not referring to what people once called brotherly love as, as good and as great a blessing as each and every one of those are. What he's referring to is uh, he's describing this self-giving, sacrificial, Christ-like love. It's captured in the Greek word agape. And, and the gift of agape love, the greatest gift of all, the greatest love of all, that lasts forever. Why is love the greatest gift? I think it probably has everything to do with the fact that God is love. God is love. And that's an extraordinary um, claim, an extraordinary belief that lies at the heart of the Christian faith. And it's an affirmation that you won't find in any of the other great world religions. Not in, in their scriptures, but, but they're in our New Testament. That statement, God is love, is in our New Testament. But, and, and think, how, how can God be love if, um, if before our creation, before the creation of the world, if God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, how could God be love if God were alone? Just loving himself? No, this is where the doctrine of, uh, of the Holy Trinity comes in. The three persons of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, eternally submitting to one another in love. God the Father, perfectly loving the Son, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, loving the Father and the Son. God the Son, loving the Father and the Holy Spirit in a dance that goes back to eternity. Uh, and, and what's love? It's, love is not making yourself the center. It's making the other the center. God's love is perfect. God's love is eternal. God's love is unfailing. And that has implications for each and every one of you, and for me. God cannot love you any more than he does right now because he loves you perfectly right now. 
And God cannot love you any less than he loves you right now because he loves you perfectly right now. God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world, listen to this, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It means Jesus didn't come to rub your sin in. He came to rub it out. To live in you and to work through you. To be a blessing to others. Created in God's image and likeness, we love As John tells us in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. We didn't come up with the idea. Why is it that we love? Why does that seem so instinctive? It's because we're created in the image and likeness of God who's loved. Now, living in a fallen world, as fallen people, our love will be imperfect. Your love for your spouse will be imperfect. Your love for your kids will be imperfect. Newsflash, your kid's love for you will be imperfect. Our love for our friends, for the people in our church family, for the people we work with will be imperfect, but imperfect as it may be, it is still a reflection of who we are as human beings created in the image and likeness of God to love. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 too, without love we are nothing because we are missing the essence of who we are. Listen, love is the greatest power in the universe. We were made in the power of love. And our lives are meant to be lived in love. This morning I was um, watching um, CBS Sunday Morning and there was just this amazing story um, about a homeless guy in Arizona. I think it was in Phoenix. Standing on a street with a cup. And all kinds of people were walking past him. And ignoring him and, you know, not making eye contact. But every so often, somebody would stop. And they'd put a coin or a bill in the little paper cup that he was holding. The extraordinary thing is that those people who stopped were people who didn't have much themselves. You know, they were struggling to figure out how to get gifts for their kids at Christmas or they'd been laid off at work. See, they knew the pain of struggle. That's why they had empathy for this homeless guy. What they didn't know is that um, somebody had given that homeless guy, trusted him with $3,000 in $100 bills. 
And for those people who stopped to give him a coin, he gave them at least a hundred in return. And th- this is the, the ministry of Jesus Christ who came into the world it really unrecognized by most people. But for those who stop and pay attention, for people who have hearts, for people who have generous spirits and compassion, they receive so much more than they give. Love has the power to heal us. Love has the power to heal relationships. If you're struggling in your, your marriage right now, if you're, you're having a tough time with your kids, or if you're struggling with a, a friendship or a coworker, I do have a bit of biblical counsel I'd like to share with you today. The number one thing that you could do for them is not pray for God to change their hearts. The number one thing that you can do for them is love them. To love your spouse, to love your kids, to love the people that God has placed in your life because it is love that has the power to heal. Love is ultimately what changes people. Love is at the heart of the Christian faith. And how does it change people? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in in 1 Corinthians 13, you know how love changes people? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonor people. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Um, I got to tell you something. Uh, This next part of the message that I'm about to enter into, um, I'll see if I can make it through it. And the reason I say that is uh, because I barely did last night, and I realized, man, is retirement emotionally exhausting. It is. So heads up. Um, Years ago, when I was a very young pastor, it was the very first year in my very first church, at a little church in, uh, in Mitchell, Illinois, I attended, I may have even had a bit part in, I don't know, a community Good Friday service. It was one of these things that took place over lunchtime. And um, while we were hearing the story of Jesus' crucifixion, as a part of, uh, of the worship service, I heard a song that had been written by the Benedictine monks of Weston Priory. 
it is the only time in my life that I ever heard the song in worship. The lyrics, honestly, weren't that great. But the song's refrain killed me. It spoke straight to my heart. The song was called, and the refrain goes, All I ask of you is forever to remember me as loving you. That's a great lyric. And it was just repeated. So we thought about Jesus' death on the cross. As I thank God, and as I thank you for the privilege of serving as your pastor for almost 30 years, it's my hope and it's my prayer. It is my heart's desire that you will, above all else, remember me as loving you. John the Baptist, speaking of the coming of Christ, said his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff. By God's grace, we will keep forever that which is worth keeping, faith. Truly trusting God, hope, resting in his promises, and love, the greatest gift of all. We will keep that which is worth keeping, And by God's grace, with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away, trusting it to the grace of God.